the whole server to go. Yeah, just I think if you hold it down, maybe it rushes. Yeah. A little different. Uh, and here's what it is. What we'd like to call you to this month is to start to think, what does it look like for Mitchell Road to actually live out this value of being a loving community, specifically on Sunday mornings? And so here's the challenge for you. The challenge for you this month is before you leave this service or this campus to find somebody you don't know, maybe particularly someone who looks like it's their first time or they're visiting and introduce yourself to them. I had uh, someone tell me one time that they lived by this mantra when they went to church, two rules. The first rule is a person who's alone is an emergency, which you might not feel like you're an emergency. That might be strong language, but you get the point, right? And the second is that friends can wait. This idea that we want to love one another well, especially if we need a loving community, especially people who are new in our midst. And so that's the challenge for us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and commit all this to him. Father, we, um, we are aware that uh, we live in an increasingly lonely world. An incredibly high percentage of us would say we don't have people that we would consider close friends a people that we can share life with. And so God, we want our church to be that kind of place. We want this community to live that way. We recognize it can be challenging with so many people gathered in a room like this. It's easy to get lost. It's easy not to care for one another like we would want to. And so God, I pray just for our hearts that loving community would not just be something that we write on our walls, but that is written into the very fabric of our lives that we care for each other deeply, that we get to know each other, that we invest in each other, that we introduce each other to other people so that every person who walks through uh, the doors of this church feels like they're loved and cared for, not just so they're loved and cared for, but so they can see that that's the heart of God. That God, you welcome us through Jesus, and so we can be a welcoming people, and so God, we pray that you would make us more like that. And I pray for all of us, we walk into this room with different struggles. Maybe some of us are walking through loneliness. For others of us, we're worried about something. Maybe something that has already happened and we're waiting to see what the consequences are gonna be. We might be worried about something that's impending in the future. So many of us walking through anxiety, through depression, so many of us very low. And the temptation, God, when we're low is to feel like you can't meet us there, that you can't find us there, that we're too far gone. We can't even figure out sometimes the words to say. And so we rely on the promises of Scripture, that you're near to the brokenhearted, that not one tear is shed that you're not aware of. Some of us, God, are uh, doing fine in life. Maybe it's just normal life and things are going pretty well. Maybe even uh, over the top, we're doing well, and the danger there is that, God, we can get uh, self-dependent, that we can get distant from you because we can think, I can kind of handle this on my own. And so, God, don't let us get too low or too high. Don't let us get too far from your very heart, the dependence of every moment, of every breath, of every decision that is the reality, whether we realize it or not. And so, God, in this service, I pray for this word as we open it up together that it would meet us where we are, that it would penetrate us into our very hearts, and the God, that you would give us what we need 
You're a personal, transcendent, and yet very eminent God. And so meet us here, we pray, and teach us from your word and change us to be more like Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. All right, we are in Jeremiah 31 this morning. So if you have a Bible or a phone or anything where you can have scripture in front of you, I would encourage you to do that. It will also be on the screen, but in some shape, form, or fashion, get your eyes on Jeremiah chapter 31. We'll be starting in verse 31 together. Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. All right, friends, how are we doing in the book of Jeremiah? Very exciting. You're feeling good. That response told me pretty much everything I need to know. Okay, don't worry, though. Uh, It gets better. We're about to jump right into Lamentations. Yeah. The title tells it all, right? Like it gets very exciting. And then we'll get right into Ezekiel and things get uh, a little crazy in Ezekiel. So we've got a good path ahead of us. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, it's not an inside joke that you can't be a part of. In fact, we'd love for you to be a part of it. We are reading through the Bible together this year as a congregation. And we are today on day 233. Uh, And it's not too late for you to jump in. If you were in and jumped out, I don't remember the Andy's pool party analogy, but I'm scared to mess it up. If you jumped out of the pool, you want to jump back in the pool, whatever, uh, come with us. I realized my sales pitch on where we currently are in God's word wasn't great, uh, but it is a great time to jump in, read the word of God as a family of faith and continue to follow God together. We'll quickly be in the New Testament. So we'd love for you to jump in. As we're in Jeremiah 31 this morning, let me just catch you up on where we are, kind of in the biblical storyline. It's sometimes good just to get our minds wrapped around where we are in the story. So uh, we've already seen that the northern tribes have been taken into exile in 722. So the Assyrians came, they took them into exile, and now 130 years have passed. And the southern tribes are still there, but Jeremiah is prophesying to them. And for 29 chapters to open the book, it's basically one message. You guys have totally blown it. This has not gone well. You're not obeying the covenant. You're not doing what God said. And so the same fate that came for the northern tribes is coming for you. Babylon is going to come and also take you into captivity. So that's the first 29 chapters. Then you go to skip ahead to chapter 34. Chapter 34 to 45 is all of this taking place. The Assyrians coming in, Jerusalem getting conquered, and then the last seven chapters of the book are judgment against the nations surrounding Israel. So 1 to 29, judgment. 34 to 52, judgment. And then right in the middle, for three great chapters, here's what God gives to them. In the midst of their darkest moment, he gives them these four chapters of hope simply to say this, sin will not have the last word. 
Your covenant unfaithfulness will not be the end of this story. There is hope. And the pinnacle moment of those four chapters, and one of the pinnacle moments of the entire Old Testament comes in Jeremiah chapter 31, when God comes on the scene and says, I'm going to establish a new covenant with my people. So before we jump right into the new covenant and all that it means, we've got to just remind ourselves what a covenant is. So we've seen all throughout the Bible, whenever God relates with his people, the only way that he does it is through covenant. That's how he always relates with them. And this idea of covenant challenges us because typically when we think, how does God relate with us? We think one of two ways. We think either God relates with us through law, that God basically is up there and says, all right, all you people down there, here's how you live. Here's the things to do. Here's the things not to do. God mainly relates to us through law. Or you think, no, no, no. God mainly relates to us through love. There are some commands, sure. There are some things that God wants you to do. But guys, it's mostly unconditional love. That's mostly what it's all about. The covenant challenges both of those things because it says it's both. It's the perfect combination of law and love. So it's not just this legal, dry, binding contract with God. There's also love involved, but it's also not just a relationship that's built on love. There are vows and promises and binding things that happen in this relationship. So it challenges both sides. And we see this play out most naturally at weddings. I got to do a wedding yesterday, so I was reminded of of how this plays out. But um, I did premarital counseling with this couple, right? And I didn't even think to ask them one time, hey, are you guys in love? It's just assumed, right? Like if you're gonna get married, you love each other. But we also didn't get to the ceremony and I walk up on stage and they walk up on stage. We didn't get to that moment and I didn't go, hey guys, guess what? They're in love. Isn't that amazing? And we just like clap and do the reception. No, that's not what we do, right? We have vows. We make solemn promises. We sign legal binding contracts. It's why I always encourage couples not to write their own vows. If you wrote your own vows, it's okay, you're still married. But I try to encourage people not to because one time I had this really bad experience where the couple uh, stood and they were doing their vows and they in their vows said this, I promise to snuggle you to death every night. And I thought, you don't want to promise that. You don't. Like for so many reasons, you don't wanna be held to that standard. You really, really don't. And so this covenant is this idea of law and love. It has both in it together. And marriage is a great picture. That's why in verse 32, God says, my covenant that you broke, though I was your husband. That God thinks about his relationship with us like that. And so the big question that we have to answer this morning is, all right, new covenant in Jeremiah 31 that's coming. Why do we need a new covenant? What was wrong with the old covenant? Why does it need to be replaced? So in Hebrews chapter eight, the author of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah 31, the passage that we just read. It's the longest quoted section of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what he basically says, this language might make you uncomfortable, but it's in the Bible. He says the old covenant was faulty. That there was something wrong with it. Not that it was sinful because God made it. God only makes good things, but there was, it had problems. And the main problem was this. The old covenant couldn't do what it set out to do. It couldn't accomplish what the purpose it existed for. 
And so the covenant has some problems. We're going to first look at it just to lay out the lay of the land for you. First, we're going to see three problems with the old covenant, and then we'll look at three promises of the new covenant. So three problems with the old covenant. Number one, perpetual sin. Perpetual sin. Hey, can we just be honest for a second? Just us, family huddle. The Israelites are exhausting, right? If you're reading through the Bible and you're not sick of them by now, you're not really reading. You're listening and tuning out. That's what's happening. Because they do the same thing over and over again. And I'm sitting here thinking, hey, God, I'm in the grind. I'm trying to read the Bible through a year. It's tough. Can we change the plot up, right? Like, let's see something unexpected every once in a while. But it's the same thing over and over and over again. Idolatry, and they run away, and immorality, and there's going to be punishment. And it's like, man, you guys are a mess, right? Exhausting. But it's also intentional, right? Because you and me, we're kind of exhausting. I'm exhausting. I know that. I exhaust myself. And Jeremiah wants to give us this picture of how sin works of this perpetual pattern of sin that the Israelites are stuck in. So let me just lay it out for you very quickly, what Jeremiah says to us, and he gives us this cycle. He says, the first step is always idolatry. The first step is idolatry. Let me read Jeremiah 2, 5, and 13 for you. And I just want you to hear, this is God speaking. Hear how God speaks to his people. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Here's how the cycle of sin always starts. There's some moment where you think, I have some desire that I'd like to see fulfilled, some need that I'd like to see met, and I gotta find it outside of God. I gotta go somewhere else to have this thirst satisfied inside of me, some other cistern that I have to dig to put water in to satisfy me. And that always leads to, second step, is immorality. Idolatry always leads to immorality. We saw this in chapter seven. Um, If you're reading along, if not, I'll I'll summarize it for you. In Jeremiah chapter seven, uh, Jeremiah gives this famous temple sermon and he's laying out all the sins of the people. And he says a lot of different things, but kind of the pinnacle moment of his sermon is to say this, things have gotten so bad Uh, with the Israelites, you guys are worshiping uh, gods and gotten so far that you're actually taking your kids and burning them, sacrificing them to these other gods. And we read that and we should go, how do we get to that spot? How do things get that bad? Maybe you look at the world right now or your own heart and think, how do we get that far to where we're at that point? And it seems crazy to us, but it's this picture that when we replace the worship of God with the worship of something else, there's no end to how far our hearts will go. There's no stopping how far we'll take it. And so idolatry always leads to immorality. And let me just lay out maybe how that happens in your lives. Just give you a couple of examples. If you idolize comfort as your ultimate satisfaction, what happens when your comfort is threatened? you probably get mad. You probably yell. It just comes out of your heart. And the immediate response is to go, well, the problem I have is anger. I got to deal with my anger. And yes, you should deal with your anger. But you always have to go one step backwards and go, what provoked that sin in me? What was the idolatry that led to that immorality? And it's the fact that you thought comfort could satisfy you and someone took it away. They took your God away. 
Maybe it's money. If we idolize money, fear naturally grips us when our money is threatened. If we idolize control, we get anxious when life gets out of control. If we idolize success, we're only content and secure when we're at the top of the food chain. And so what is the idol that leads to the immorality in your life? The third step in this cycle of sin is insensitivity. God says to his people, you're in sin, come back. Look at Jeremiah 5. Oh Lord, you have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refuse to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. A hundred times in the book of Jeremiah, God says to his people, repent, and they never do it. Because they're indifferent to the voice of God. They're not listening anymore. And then look at the fourth and final step, Jeremiah 6, indifference. Ultimately, that leads us to indifference. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of God is to them an object of scorn, and they take no pleasure in it. The final step, after we walk through idolatry to immorality to indifference, we get to insensitivity. And here's what happens. You fail to listen to the voice of God so much that your heart becomes hardened and you can no longer hear it. It's gone. You can't sense it anymore. That call to repentance isn't coming to your ears anymore. So we had an um, animal die in our wall of our house a couple of weeks ago. I'm not, no one prepares you for this kind of thing when you buy a house. Like there should be a, something that says like, hey, by the way, an animal might die in your wall. Like you just know that before you buy a house. So anyways, uh, this animal tortured us for a week. Here's what happened. So it would come into our house apparently only at two o'clock in the morning and we'll be sleeping and I sleep harder than Jen. So all of a sudden like the hand flies and she like hits me, right? It's like, wake up, there's an animal in our house. Uh, and so I listen and it's like, scratch, 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 scratch. And it's like, no, it's in the wall. We're fine. And I'm like back asleep. That was good for me. Not good for her. And so uh, a week went by and this thing was torturing us. And then finally it died. And I thought, ha, we won. Oh no, <laughs> we lost again. Uh, so it died and um, I don't know, it had to be a raccoon or something. The smell was unbelievable. It was probably just a mouse. I don't know. The smell is unbelievable. So what do you do? You get on YouTube, right? Like YouTube solves everything. I put a new carburetor in my lawnmower because of YouTube. Who knew, like what? So you can figure anything out on YouTube. So I get on YouTube and it's like, oh, it's gonna be fine. Find where the beams are and cut a hole in your wall. <laughs> I'm like, no, I am out on that. Like what's the next option? Is it like a magnet or something? Like what, what can we do here? And it's like, no, uh, your only other option if you're gonna cut a hole in your wall is to wait two weeks and eventually it'll decompose. And I'm like, yes, I can do that. Two weeks, no big deal, right? We can do it. So the first week, it just got increasingly worse, the smell, right? And then after about eight days or nine days, I said to Jen, hey, I think it, it's gone. It doesn't smell anymore. And she said, you've lost your mind. It smells worse than it ever has. Like this is worse than it's been. And then three days later, she said, Oh no, I think you're right. Like the smell is gone. And we're like in the clear, right? We're celebrating. Then some friends came into town and they were very kind, but I just wanted to be a good host. So I was like, Hey, um, like, do you smell anything like a little off, like, or whatever? And they were like, I mean, like a little bit. Yeah. Like a little bit. <laughs> so good. Just being so kind about the whole situation. Hey, it's a funny story to give us a picture of what sin does to us. 
that if we let it go far enough down this path, eventually we get insensitive to it. And we don't want to turn from it. And we stop listening to God. And we're in a place of no return. It's where sin always leads us to this point of indifference. And it's frustrating to watch play out, but here's what you have to do. You have to, if y'all throw that cycle back up there, if you'll look at that cycle of four things, you have to find where am I right now in this moment on the idolatry, immorality, insensitivity, indifference thing. If I'm feeling indifferent about my sin, I don't even hear God calling me to repent anymore. Man, the first thing you gotta do is you gotta figure out a way to repent. You gotta respond to the voice of God that maybe you're not even hearing anymore, but get back to God. If you're uh, struggling with some kind of specific sin, trace it back. What's the idol that's led to that sin? Because the reality is we live this out just like they did. And so the first problem of the old covenant is the people are living in perpetual sin. Problem number two, they're offering pointless sacrifices. Look at Jeremiah 6.20. What used to me is, the frank, is frankincense that comes from Sheba, or sweet cane from a distant land. Your burnt offerings are not acceptable to me, nor are your sacrifices pleasing to me. Here's what the Israelites have done. They've come to this place in their worship of God where they've elevated this like ritual act of offering sacrifices to the highest place in worship. So they've basically thought, hey, in worship, what what we'll really do is we'll worship God by offering these ritual sacrifices. But what they miss is that what God actually wants is righteous lives. The whole point was obedience. The whole point was for them to love God and want to follow him with their whole heart and mind and soul and strength, right? But they've taken just this ritual thing and said, hey, if we just go through the motions of the ritual and offer the sacrifices, we'll be good with God. And God's on the scene going, you have missed the whole point. And so you have to ask yourself, have you missed the whole point? Are you sitting in this room right now, going through the motions of worship, doing the rituals of Christianity, but your life is far from God? You're missing the fact that what God actually wants from you is your love, your heart, your obedience. Are you just going through the motions? Are you just walking down the path, doing the right things, but your heart is far from him? It's not what God wants. So second problem is pointless sacrifices. The third problem is powerless people. This is the biggest problem under the old covenant. Not only do you have people who are living in perpetual sin, offering pointless sacrifices, they're now at a point where they're totally powerless to do anything about it. So look at Jeremiah 13, 23. Can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard its spots? Neither can you who neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. And so what Jeremiah is saying is, you guys have so worn this pathway down of sin through idolatry, just followed it so many times, you're now at the point where you're powerless to turn back. You're powerless to do anything about it. You can't change. And so this is the scene. I just want to kind of paint this for you. Here's when God comes on the scene with this new covenant. This is the state that they're in. Uh, They're powerless. They're offering pointless sacrifices. They're living in perpetual sin. All of these things are happening And God says, all right, I'm going to do a new covenant with you. And we just kind of read right over that. But I want you to see how massive of a moment this is. Because God doesn't come on the scene and go, hey, here's the deal. The covenant was fine. You guys blew it. Let's find a new group of people and see how they do. 
No, God says, I'm gonna make a new covenant with the same people, with Israel and with Judah. And here's why that matters. Because what happens when you get in your lowest moment, in your darkest time, in your furthest point from God? This passage reminds us that we don't have to wonder in that moment, is God just gonna go, I'm gonna find somebody who's far less tiring to work with because you're a total mess. I had a moment like that a few weeks ago. Um, I feel like I always tell y'all when me and Jen get in a fight, we actually have a pretty good marriage. Do pray for us, but don't worry about us. Uh, but it's just the best example I have. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we got in a fight and I, I don't know if you'll ever have moments like this um, in life where all of the worst things about you, the things you hate the most about yourself show up all at once. So we got in this fight. It was as usual, all my fault. I said things that I immediately knew I was gonna regret, things that I would be too ashamed to even repeat to you right now. Worse than that, she tried to move towards me, I dug in. She got more stubborn. Satan loves to take advantage of moments like that when you're already low and go, oh, hey, by the way, remember this (laughs) and this. And it just piles on top of you. And I just remember thinking, what in the world is wrong with me? How have I gotten here? You know what would make that moment 10 times worse? Is if in that moment I had to think, is this when God has finally had enough? Is this it? Is this when God's finally gonna say, hey, dude, this is way too far. No, this passage reminds me and it reminds you, maybe you're in one of those moments right now. This is a covenant keeping God that in our lowest moment comes to you even in the midst of your covenant breaking and says, I'm gonna keep my covenant with you. I'm gonna stick with you. Even though you want nothing to do with me. This is a great, great promise from God. And so three promises very quickly from the new covenant. First of all, the new covenant promises new power. New power. One of the mistakes that we can make when we're differentiating between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, you could really say the Old Testament and the New Testament, same idea, is to go, hey, the Old Testament, that was mostly about law. I mean, there was like 50 million of them, mostly about law. New Covenant, New Testament, thank goodness it's come because it's basically just grace, right? All grace, all the time. But the reality is both covenants are law and grace. God hasn't just all of a sudden lowered his standards and said, don't worry about keeping the law. I don't really care about that stuff anymore. It's just all love and grace from now on. No, it's both. It's both and we can make a mistake. The difference between the old and the new is that now we actually have the power to obey. We actually now have the power to obey. So back in verse 32, God says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. You remember, right? This great moment in the old covenant. Moses comes down from the mountain, Exodus 32. He's got to go back up and do it again because he broke the tablets, right? But what's the picture there? God's law written on stone for the people. But it's not as if like the stone tablets came down with the laws and the people are like, oh, if only we had known the rules, we would have followed. You just had to write them on the stone for us, right? It reminds me of um, when I used to do youth ministry and we'd go on a trip. Before the trip, there's a fine line between laying out rules and laying out too many rules because too many rules become ideas. For example, if you say, hey, don't bring fireworks, somebody's gonna go, oh, 
I could break fireworks. And what if we put them in the toilet? What happens when you put, you see what I mean? It just gets off the rails so fast. There's a fine line. (laughs) Jeremiah has already told us the reality in chapter 17, verse one. Listen to what he says. This language is so intentional. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it's engraved on the tablet of their heart. The point is, who cares if you got the law written on stone when your heart has not been changed? It's all external. The only hope that we have is that if God comes in and changes our heart, that if he comes in and gives us new power by writing the law on our hearts internally to change us so we have the ability to obey it. And that's what he does. That's what he promises. In other words, we don't enter into the new covenant through obedience to the law. God invites us into the new covenant and he gives us the ability to obey the law. That is, Christianity is different than every other religion in that way. Every other religion says, do this and then you will live. God says in the new covenant, I'm going to make you alive. Now do this because you've got the power to actually live it out. You got the ability to actually do it. And now we obey, but not out of fear or duty. We obey out of love because God has transformed our hearts. So the difference is this. Imagine this scenario. Um, Imagine a husband um, who comes home and he says to his wife, um, hey, uh, I read in a book at some point that uh, girls and flowers, those are two things that go together. And so I put a reminder in my calendar every six weeks to bring you roses. So I went by Publix on the way home and here's some flowers. Okay, (laughs) like, all right. Compare that scenario to a husband who comes home and says, "Um, hey, I just could literally not stop thinking about you all day. Just couldn't stop. And I think flowers are kind of ridiculous, honestly. They cost way too much money. But I just had to give this to you to show you how much I love you. I mean, do you see the difference? Same action, right? The wife still gets the flowers. But man, the obedience, the desire to do it doesn't come from duty. What does God actually want? He wants obedience out of love, out of affection. And this is so important because we tend to think, here's what we tend to think. The people who obey most, they're just like the most like disciplined, dutiful type people. The Bible challenges that and says, no, the people who obey God the most are actually the people who get grace the most. When you let grace work deeply down into your heart and see what God has done for you, the natural overflow of that is to go, I want to obey God. I don't have to. I'm not scared of what he's going to do if I don't. I want to obey him. And so if you want to be a more obedient person, if you want to care about the law and follow God and give him your whole life, get grace deeper down in your heart and let the obedience flow out. Secondly, second promise of the new covenant, we get new presence, new presence. Look back at verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. It's the picture that Jeremiah is giving us. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, all right, in the old covenant, here's how it worked. If you wanted to meet with God, uh, it was an upper echelon type person. The best and the brightest of the community, one person gets to meet with God. So you think about Moses, like the pinnacle example, right? Two million people come out of their tents and they watch Moses like walk into this tent and he goes into the tent of meeting, he meets with God and then he walks out and like his face is glowing, right? Like his amazing moment. And then Moses says, all right, here's what God has to say to y'all. Just a 
one group of people get to go into the presence of God on a limited basis. And God says, no, 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 now in the new covenant, everybody gets access from the least to the greatest. It's not just some upper echelon, most obedient leader type person. No, all of you with faith in Christ have presence into the access of God. How is that possible? Because we have a mediator too. And he went into the tent of meeting, not just to meet with God for us, but to rip it in half and to say, come boldly, come boldly to God. You have presence to God now, presence with God now too. And so God's promising this new presence for all of us. And we just have to take a second and just step back because here's what we can do sometimes. I don't know if you felt this when you're reading through the Bible, but sometimes we can go, man, my faith is weak, but if I could have been there at like the Red Sea, like I would believe like nobody's business, right? If I could have been there when like Gideon laid the fleece out and the dew was on it and then it wasn't on it and that whole business, I would believe like the plagues or the angel armies. Like if I could have just seen this stuff, why doesn't God work like this anymore? But the reality is the old covenant people are looking at us sitting in this room right now and going, you have no idea what you have. No idea. You have presence we could only dream of with God. You have access we never thought was possible to God. Any second of any day, no matter where you are, you have access to God. This is an amazing thing. Um, I don't know if you have a life verse. If you don't have a life verse, can I propose one to you? You're like, no, you cannot. But we're going to do it anyway. So Acts 4.13, it's a great verse. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Here's like these religious leaders, and here's all they know. Hey, people like Moses, they're the only ones who get to meet with God. And after they meet with God, they're totally changed people. Here's these guys that I don't even think finished middle school blue-collar fisherman-type guys. And I don't have any explanation for it, but something about them is different. And the only thing I can figure out is that they've been with Jesus. Now, they have no idea what they're saying because they don't believe Jesus is who he said he was. But they make a more profound point than they could ever imagine. That common people like you and me have access into the presence of God whenever we want it, and we can be transformed. We can be changed. This is an amazing verse. I'm reading a book by A.W. Tozer right now called The Pursuit of God. This is a long quote that I want to read, read, from, read to you from it. But he's arguing that majority of Christians don't have this kind of relationship with God. So just um, read, let me read through this, and you just kind of take in and go, all right, where am I? Is this the kind of relationship I have with God? Tozer says, to most people, God is an inference, not a reality. He's a deduction from evidence which they consider adequate, but he remains personally unknown to the individual. Others do not even go so far as to say this. They only know of him by hearsay. They've never bothered to think the matter out for themselves. They've heard about him from others, and they've put belief into him into the back of their minds, along with the various odds and ends that make up their total creed. To many others, God is but an ideal, another name for goodness, beauty, or truth. These notions about God are many and varied, but they who hold them have one thing in common. They do not know God in personal experience. 
the possibility of intimate acquaintance with him has not entered their minds. While admitting his existence, they do not think of him as knowable in the sense that we know things or people. Over and against all of this cloudy vagueness stands the clear scriptural doctrine that God can be known in personal experience. And so my question is very simple. Do you know him like that? Or do you settle for like this transactionary kind of Christianity where you just say to God every once in a while, hey God, here's a bunch of my sin and God tosses back some righteousness? Or do you have this moment by moment walking with the spirit kind of relationship with God that thousands of years of followers wanted to have and you get to have the privilege of knowing God like this? It's an amazing thing. Last thing, last promise we get from the new covenant is a new priest. Verse 34. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. It's what we saw all throughout the Old Covenant. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And we start to figure out somewhere along the way, man, this doesn't work. Like the blood of animals can't really pay for the sins of people. Can't work. And so God promises, hey, there's going to be a sacrifice that's so perfect that's so effective, that he's gonna cover your sin in such a way that God literally does not remember it anymore. It's that distant from you. It's that far from you. It's that removed from you. And you can just imagine the people going, man, that would be great. A sacrifice that once for all takes care of sin like that where God doesn't even remember it, that would be amazing. And then 600 years go by. And generation after generation wonders, What was Jeremiah talking about? Could it possibly even be? And then Jesus in Luke 22 sits at the last supper with the disciples and he takes the cup and he raises it and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you, for the forgiveness of sins. That Jesus is the sacrifice that he offers himself in our place. And here's the reality. Believe this with every fiber of your being. God, because of Jesus, remembers your sin no more. It's taken care of. You live in the reality of what everybody was looking forward to because of Christ. In Hebrews 10, it says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time when enemies should be made his footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He sits, because what he said on the cross was true. It's finished. He's not preparing another sacrifice at this moment. It's done. God remembers it no more. So let's read this quote from Corey Ten Boom, summarizing all of this, and we'll be done. She says, God takes our sins, past, present, and future, and dumps them in the sea and puts up a sign that says, no fishing allowed. (laughs) What a savior. Father, we...